Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to this week, the O2 Podcast, the Ohio Outdoors Podcast. Andrew and Paul back at it again. Paulson is outside office tonight. Paul, what's Man, up? I am. I'm sitting on the deck, dude. Got the thermocell fired up. Got beer sitting next to me months. It's a good, good night to be in America. I was going to ask if the skeeters were bad out there. Dude, I, I think that I could find a mosquito. Like, they, they seek me out, man. It is seek and destroy for my big ass. They love me. So yeah, dude, the uh, turkey cave is is under renovation. So let's you know you started to talk about that. It's a great topic right now. It's, uh, it is now is a great time to do, scratch off that honey do list. And oh. I know you've been plugging away hard. I I have. So we just a little little brief brief history with your friend Paul. Uh, twenty twenty COVID right. Bought some doors, new doors, replace all the doors in the house. And I'll be honest, dude, there's still a couple pieces of trim in this house that I haven't put up, right? Replace all the trim, all the doors. There's a couple spots, right? A couple spots that don't have trim. I'm on the three, four-year, five-year plan for the trim. Got that done. And so I, I, I my office is cool. It's fun. It's just kind of like a dungeon. So Turk Cave, Turk Camel Cave, whatever you want to call it, was getting a, was getting a remodel. So I bought all the stuff to do it. New floor, new wall decorations and everything uh new lighting just so it's more comfortable and my wife was like i would divorce you um right now if your office gets redone before my bathroom does so i have all of this stuff for my like i did the floor and she's like that's it <laughs> she got all fired up dude so i spent the weekend and then a little bit today <laughs> dude remodeling this bathroom new floor new wall shower surround all of it man that's so, boy. Yeah, walls are done, lights are up, painting. Happy wife, bright. happy life. That's it, man. That's it. So, oh, dude, I, I just drag my feet on some of these projects for whatever reason. I don't know. So if you can relate, you suck, just like I do. <laughs> no, you're good, man. It takes time. You can't rush perfection, right? <clears throat> you're damn right you can't. So. Oh, what else is going on? Oh man, I got a trip to Nashville this weekend for work. It's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of work coming up. Um, applied for a bunch of some duck lottery, lottery hunts, some small game hunts, and yeah, man, nice. Yeah, I. Uh, you? Did you get those knocked out? Did you get your your permits or your uh, lotteries applied for? Yeah, and got the Michigan license set up, and got the Pennsylvania yeah, I got that stuff. today in the mail. I need to check and see if I got mine yet. Um, yeah. Pennsylvania stuff's ready to go. So over the weekend. I built a double ladder stand because my daughter wants to go out and she says she, she does. And, um, that was a lot of work. <laughs> uh, I've built one of those before actually out in the woods and I don't remember it being so cumbersome, but man, it's like a Hawk two man stand and it's going to be as comfortable as can be to sit in. Like just, I can tell you that right now. He's like canvas chairs or whatever, mm -hmm. but dude, if anybody from Hawk listens to this, 
it seems like great product. Not you know, I can't. I haven't. It's not up in the tree yet. <clears throat> but the uh, you sent me this bag of washers and bolts and nuts, and it was one bag with like literally a thousand pieces in it. And to just man, it took me as long to just divvy all those up and separate them as it did anything. Uh, so I worked on that, and then still trying to fling a few arrows here and there, and then uh, pulled up my my X-Vision scope out and uh, was shooting a few rounds the other day with that. We had some, ba- had some battles with raccoons in the chicken coop. Oh, it's dirty bastards. Yeah, they're uh, turkey. You talk about them being nest predators and stuff. Well, they're coop predators in my house. Um, but yeah, man, that's, uh, that's about all that's happening over here. So let's see. Um, Paul, why don't you hit up the, pay the bills real quick. Uh, yeah, man. So, so stories. thanks for, thanks for listening to us talk about the people that support the show that, that, um, you know, support you as hunters, uh, and anglers. So, you know, midwestgunworks.com. We've talked about them for, for almost a year now, Andrew, got to know Cameron, who I guess is no longer at Midwest. Uh, so Cameron, if you're listening, we know you listen every week, man, we appreciate your support, but, uh, awesome, awesome selection of gun parts of the gun enthusiasts for rebuilding an AR-15. If you get in a rifle, uh, 350 legend, 450 Bushmaster, or whatever you got for, for deer season here, uh, in the great state of Ohio or elsewhere months, they got everything that you need ammo optics. They've got parts, every part that you can possibly imagine for the gun enthusiast. So Ohio outdoors five saves you five percent. Check out MidwestGunworks.com. They've got a really good, uh, resource library. If you are hung up trying to put together a Remington 870 or Winchester 1300, whatever you got working on. Uh, they are your go-to place for the firearms enthusiast uh, in this country. MidwestGunworks.com, Ohio Outdoors 5. Save yourself 5%. Uh, thanks to our friends at Half-Rack. Uh, what's what's their, what's their saying? It's um, fond memory, good year, fond memories. Good times, for something uh, like that. Yeah, yeah good, good times, fond memories. And, man, what great what a great company what you know good good values man they got some really cool stuff shirts are awesome uh so thanks to those guys for the support of our show um ohio outdoors 15 save yourself 15 percent uh thanks to x-vision x-vision optics you know you just mentioned you were out plugging away shooting some rounds with that thing that thing's pretty cool man i need to get on their website and get some stuff ordered uh from those guys thermal scopes range-finding thermal binoculars, just regular old binoculars, range-finding binoculars. Man, they got, they got it all. They got a binocular. So if you're into that stuff, if you're into the tech, into the gear, those are your guys to check out, your company to check out. Uh, Andrew, First Light. First Light. I just got an email. Oh, my gosh. We got the uh, – oh, man. Dang it. Where did it go? Sp- uh, what are they going to call it? Yeah, season opener good. sale. Okay, so season opener sale. It'll st- – technically starts tomorrow, but so that'll be August 1st. The show will air August 2nd, but there are some great things for early season on there and the catalyst system, which if there is one system in general, it's not going to be great when it's 90 degrees out, but I would say anywhere from like 60 down to 30. If it's layering, right, it's kind of that bread and butter, perfect time window that's on there. So check that out. And then we've got, um, all right, BlackgateHuntingGear.com. Is that what it is? Oh, oh. man. Man, we are really bad at that. BlackgateHuntingGear.com. Blackgate Trail Camera. Holy oh, my moly. God. Did you see the picture I sent you today? 
Yeah, I saw that. Whole, dude. I mean, that was pretty wild, man. Cool looking buck, but at the same time, it's just that the image quality is unbelievable. Yeah, the the clarity, uh, the clarity is no joke. And it's uh, not. With, you don't have to order HD. You don't have to go pull the card. That's just the normal image. And I'll keep posting them some of the social media and stuff. But like, big shout out, Ohio based company. Um, yeah, we'll, code on there so, uh, for ten percent off is O two podcast. Uh, I know my buddy Tyler, he ordered a couple. We got those hung yesterday. So, um, yeah, man, those are great cameras. So thank man, you to those they, guys. They, uh, they, they are no joke. Uh, really, really good guys. So, yeah, check them out. They've got uh, yeah, they got some really cool products. So, And last but not least, our buddies at Go Wild. Time to go wild.com. Check out the app your online social media for hunters and anglers and all things outdoors. Um, we've obviously gotten to be good friends with those guys. Uh, what a bunch, man. And they are top-notch, of course, and they've got their shop on there, just adding thousands and thousands of items, all kinds of things. Um, I want to get into trapping, and we'll talk about that, Paul, um, as time goes on. We've got some connections with the Ohio State Trappers Association. We'll get them on here. But Go Wild's got some trapping stuff on there, so I'm probably going to be pulling pulling the trigger on some of that as we get closer to trapping season and all that goes with that. But that's a major learning curve. Anywho, time to go wild.com. Appreciate you guys and everything you do for us. So news from around the state. Now, Paul, I don't have a ton of like individual news stories. I've been getting updates every day from ODNR on what is going on at the Natural Resources Park at the State Fair. And yeah, I will tell you, I, um, my wife took the kids yesterday, uh, for a few hours and they spent all the time <laughs> in the, in the, oh, yeah. in the natural resources area, checking out the trappers, doing the archery, everything there is there. Um, so if you get a chance to get down to the state fair, make sure you check out the natural, uh, resources park. They got yeah. All kinds of stuff going on there. And then I think the only other news story that I thought was cool I just got to go to the Natural Resources Park. That was a lot of fun, man. That was neat. That was a neat event. Oh, yeah. You had a cool dinner the other night. Was that it? Yeah, I did. It was uh, the Sportsman's Sportsman's Dinner, or Sportsman's Night, hosted by um, by Director Mertz uh, and Chief Wecker. Rob Keck, uh, former CEO of the NWTF, was the keynote speaker, and it was uh, agency partners uh, of the of the Natural uh Ohio Department of Natural Resources. So it was, pre- it was pretty neat. There was a lot of conservation-minded folks there. A couple, um, you know, some legislators, a lot of uh, really good people from the agency that, uh, that you and I have both gotten to know. Yeah. Uh, I've probably gotten to know a little more just uh, just through work. So a bunch of our law enforcement agents were there. Yeah, it was really, really neat, man. It was really, really cool event. Got, meet, got to meet the governor, which is pretty neat. So, yeah, man. Yes, sir. So let's see. ODNR selects a new group of teen conservation leaders. So the department has announced 70 students that will be part of their conservation teen advisory council. So congratulations to all those teens out there working to make a difference in the conservation world. Uh, More information about that at OhioDNR.gov. Let's see. So, well, man, I think uh, as far as, the episode goes this week. We got kind of a two-parter. The first part is a, is a quick blurb with our buddy Craig from Hero to the Line. Um, and I think it's Hero, the number two, 
herotheline.org. Um, let me just double check that, make sure I'm right here. Yes, hero, the number two, theline.org. And this is a, a group that helps veterans, um, places puppies, Labrador puppies with veterans to help them cope with different things, helps them to also, um, you know, become involved in working dogs, sports, all kinds of stuff like that. I'll let Craig tell more about it, uh, in the first blurb. And then, um, and they're having an event August 26th up near Bucyrus, I think he said. But, okay. Pretty um, cool. Yeah, yeah. More information on, on his clip. And then we've got our buddy Mitch Shirk over to the east in Pennsylvania. And we've had Mitch on before. He's a brethren of the Sportsman's Empire. But Mitch's like day-to-day job is as an agronomy consultant. So he goes around to farms and helps farmers grow their crops so who else better to talk about food plots than a guy who does it for a living right wow Uh, so mitch is is very very intelligent um he's super passionate intelligent great hunter checks all the boxes very good hunter knows what he's doing has experience um this is part of our little series here we did uh we had greg from ohio Whitetail Partners, um, they're early in July talking about habitat. This is kind of the next go around with habitat. More on what you should be thinking about food plot wise as you head into the fall and gear up for uh, hunting season. So, gear gear talk. I'm doing the O2 Roadshow Wednesday, going down to see our buddies at Sirius Archery. There you go. Tuning a bow, bringing everything with me, months. We're going to dive into it, buddy. We're going to get all down in the weeds. Yeah, and I want you guys to, uh, as as we get closer into the, or as we move forward here, closer to the season, we've got some pretty cool ones on, and I'm just going to, we're just going to drop some little hints here. So we're going to talk about hunting in Kentucky. Uh, we're going to talk to Sirius. We got our food plots with Mitch. We're going to talk to drone deer recovery. Uh, and we've got a few more that we're working on, Blackgate cameras. Uh, so Trail cam, trail cam tactics, early season scout, uh, all sorts of stuff. Man. Yeah, it's gonna be a blast. So it should be good. I think as we move forward, so. we're gonna see a lot of episodes that'll be real relevant and helpful. Uh, hopefully, answer some questions as we move closer to the season. Yeah, for sure. So thanks for thanks for listening, guys. Really, really appreciate you. We see the numbers, we see the growth, and it's all because of you guys. Thank you uh, for for the support of your show, and hopefully we. Brighten your week every once in a while, and, and, and you learn a little bit. So, Absolutely. So if you guys, uh, let's see, we're on Instagram, the o2.podcast. Uh, Go Wild is o2podcast. Uh, you can leave us reviews on any of your major podcast platforms. Uh, website is the o2podcast.com. And we're there. Let us know if you got anything, and we'll be here next week. Appreciate you guys. Take care. All right. What's up, everybody? We are back. And tonight I've got special guest, uh, Craig. From Hero to the Line. Craig, how are you tonight? Good, man. Good. Good. Uh, was it hot enough out there for you today? Uh, it wasn't too terrible, to be honest. We got a pretty good breeze here in, in southeast Indiana, so it's, it's been pretty steady. There you go. Well, that's good. Uh, it was warm. At least I felt like it was warm out today, but 
Um, Craig, you're part of a, a pretty cool group, and we want to, you know, you guys reach out to us. Did a little bit of of a chat there, and then uh, you sent me some stuff. It was really cool to, to watch uh, the video that you sent me. Hero to the line, right, is the name of of the organization that you're part of. Yeah. All right. Can you give listeners a rundown of what Hero to the Line is? Yeah, so uh, here at Alliance, so we're an organization that gives well-bred retriever puppies to veterans, active duty, gold star families. Um, the goal is to get them involved in the retriever sports, um, get them out of the house, get them involved in a community that's been established for, for decades, um, and give them something else to do. So how long have you guys been, been at this? So we started back in 2020. Um, we've given away... Roughly about 25, I think, total recipients so far is what we have. We give puppies away four times a year, uh, once every quarter. Uh, we do three to four puppies generally during those uh, PCS events. Uh, that's when we send our puppies home with their with their new recipient um, and get them started on their journey. And how did you come up with an idea like this? I mean, what's the importance of, uh, you know, just giving dogs to, to the vets? Man, this is, uh, we can go into quite the story. Um, so in 2020, I had a, I had a mental breakdown in 2019. Um, I lost everything and my dog say, saved my life. Um, and that kind of, and then the sport kind of kept me out of that funk. Um, so I had a lady reach out to me. I run a, I'm a dog breaker is what I really do for a living. Um, and I had a lady reach out, wanted to breed her stud dog to a, to a female and, and produce a litter of puppies and donate one to a police department. Um, we all kind of got the chit chat and then it kind of evolved into this, let's just give them away to some veterans and some, some active duty people. And, um, here we are, man. Now we, we do this once every quarter. We, uh, we got quite the community of people. We, everybody goes home with the Freddie King, uh, retriever trainer series. We got professional trainers, pro breeders, dog brokers, uh, mental health, substance abuse specialists. I mean, all kinds of people in our organization that, that are there to answer questions and uh, help people along. Man, that is an absolutely wonderful thing. And I know my, my retriever, now he is not a working dog. He is a lazy dog, but the (laughs) the companionship that he brings, um, he's, he's special, man. So I, I, I hear you on some of that. I mean, so I have a three time grand hunter, retriever champion, upland hunter, master hunter. Um, we, he's duck hunted, uh, we did some SRS stuff, but he's my full-time service dog, really, is, is what he does now. Um, so, I mean, there's just such an opportunity for people to build a brand-new community, get involved with with people that you normally you normally don't get involved with, um, get you out of the house, and give you back that camaraderie, that sense of purpose, um, and, and that sense of brotherhood and belonging. You know, I mean, the, the group is just absolutely massive. You could do everything from shed hunting, dock diving, rally sports, agility, mushroom hunting, retriever trials, upland. I mean, the list is a mile long what you're able to accomplish with a dog like this. And so when you guys give the the puppies away, it's not it doesn't just end there, right? Do you help with the training and all that kind of stuff? So we, we don't we don't help with the training per se. So what we do is we send you home. Um, we try our best to, to match you up with people that are close to you, whether it's a retriever club, pro trainer, amateurs, friends, clients, whatever. 
Um, but you go home with the Freddie King retrie- the the retriever trainer. Um, that's a great place to start. You can get you can go from a started dog all the way to a finished level dog with that series. They get it free of charge for them for life. Um, it's a, a great way to get a foot in the door, find you a local club, go to some training days, go to some tests. Um, you'll you'll find local hunting people. You'll find new hunt buddies, new guides. I mean, there's just a bajillion things that you could find just within that dog community. And and the organization itself is nationwide or is it just regional? No, so we operate nationwide. Okay. Um, so our PCS events, which are permanent change of station, military term, if you're familiar. Um, anytime you get restations, it's either a duty chit or a PCS. Um, that's when you move. So what we do is four times a year, February, May, August, November, same every year. Um, we bounce around all over the country. So we were just in Huntsville, Texas, uh, back in May. We were in Union City, Tennessee in February. We're going to be in Ashland, Ohio, Besiris, Ohio, um, here in August, August 26th, um, free to the public. And then we're going to be in Oklahoma in November. And then next year, we're starting to plan out where we're bouncing around next year. That's awesome. So do you want to talk a little bit about the event that you're going to be holding up there in Bucyrus? Yeah, for sure. So it's at Elk Ridge uh, Hunt Club. Um, it's a one-day event. It's just a big training day. If you're interested in coming and seeing some professional competitive retrievers come run, some really cool setups, um, some some really ducky water, uh, we're going to be training from about 9 o'clock in the morning till 2. Um, if you have a dog and you want to bring it, um, there's a few things that I need to ask you prior to that, and you're going to have to get a hold of me directly so that I can put you on the list. We have about 10 open slots. Um, so we probably have close to 50-something dogs coming. Um, quite a few pro trainers, uh, some really good amateur trainers. So we're going to have quite the show, and uh, you're more than welcome to come participate. Buy shirts, raffle tickets. Uh, there will be a food truck on site. Um, just a great way to network, communicate with people, find out a little bit more about dog training, meet your meet these recipients and start building community right there. That's what it's truly all about. Is, is there a cost associated if, if you're just coming up to uh, no, enjoy the event? None, none whatsoever. None, not unless you want to buy raffle tickets or, or buy a shirt or a hat or whatever the case is. Uh, but it's free, open to the public. Um, you're more than welcome to come. If you are coming, just let us know. Um, reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, um, my contact information's all over our website. It's pretty easy to get a hold of us. Okay. So what were the dates again on that? So it's August 26th. August 26th. Okay. And you said Elk Ridge Lodge? Elk Ridge Hunt Club. Hunt Club. Okay. Uh, your website is? Hero, the number two, the line.org. Um, and then the same thing on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Um, you should be able to find our, our promotional flyer for that event on our Facebook page as well. Gives you the the address, the times, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I'll make sure we put that in the show notes so that anybody watching can pull that up um, from there. Uh, man, there was something else I was going to ask you. If somebody how, – how do you go about selecting the recipients? So it's it's pretty pretty painless process. Um, so online, go to our website. There's an application. Fill out the application and ask very basic questions. Where do you live? Are you allowed to have a dog? A little bit of time about uh, your time in the service, you know, just to make sure that you're eligible. And then from there, you get put on a list. That list 
our breeder or recipient coordinator goes through that list and makes phone calls and conducts a phone interview. Um, that's really where your vetting starts. Um, he, he trains dogs on a professional level. Um, he's active duty, works in psychological warfare type stuff in, inside the military. So he, he's really hard to lie to, understands dogs, understands breeding, understands uh, how to run hunt tests. So quite the guy to ask you questions. Um, and then from there, if he says yes, you get put on a, on a list and it's basically a rank list from top to bottom. And if we bounce around to, let's say, Texas, the closer you are to where we're going to be, that's kind of how we select who gets our puppy win. And it's the same process for breeders as well. So we we vet all of our breeders. Um, they do OF certified hips and elbows, genetics. Um, we make sure that they well puppies properly. Um, and we're not just getting random dogs from random people. Um, we source our puppies from some of the best breeders out there. That's awesome. And that's at no charge to the, the vet that hundred percent That's awesome. puppies are donated by all of our breeders. Um, we have some great sponsors that help us kind of bounce around the country. Uh, I mean, we got like R and R dog gear. They help us with collars and leashes, donate to every single recipient. They build these really cool American flag, uh, slip lead and training lanyards, uh, pops, custom calls, Jimmy Westerman. He's actually a recipient of our program. When he reached out to me the first time, he, said, man, what else can I do? So now he builds a custom duck call for every single recipient. Um, he builds handmade American flag whistles that are on our website for people to purchase. Um, it's just, it's such a great community of people. They've all started a podcast. So there's a couple of recipients that have started a podcast um, just to, so that we can, you can follow along with recipients uh, progress and where they're at with their puppies. Um, talk to professional dog trainers and breeders and get to know that, that bond between, you know, animal and human. Man, that's great. As a dog person, I can, I can completely uh, get behind this and as a very big supporter of our military men and women. So, um, Craig, I will make sure we have this, the show notes here to the line.org, uh, August 26th. Right. And yep. we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep reminding people as we get closer to that, uh, date, up there in Bucyrus. So, uh, is there anything else? Follow you on Facebook or is all Instagram? Yeah. So? so we got a, we got a community page on Facebook. There's about 1600 people on there. Bunch of pro dog trainers, breeders, amateurs, non-dog people, um, jump on there, be a part of the community, help support our recipients in their, in their journey. Um, and you know, if you ever want to get involved on a sponsor level, there's an application on our website as well. Um, we can go through that process. If you're a breeder, you want to become one of our breeders. Um, there's an application on our website as well. You can go start that process. Um, but other than that, man, it's Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, follow us and uh, help us change lives one dog at a time. Love it. Absolutely love it. So, Craig, appreciate your time tonight, and uh, we'll keep spreading the word. Thanks, my man. Yep. Appreciate it. Where are we at? Get me up to speed, Mitch. Keep you up to speed yet. We're uh, we're we were sitting here waiting on you. We're just BSing about podcasting. So we're oh, back. Okay, we're nice. back. And uh, there's we we have a no man left behind policy when we do a podcast. Man, I appreciate that. Yeah, we're this is this is uh, what third third or fourth time trying to start this interview. Something like that. Something like Something that. Like it, that. It, it it happens. It's a 
It's a Wednesday night. It's July. Nobody likes July. I hate July. I really do. Yeah. yeah. This it's it's this this has exceptional podcasts just written all over. But it, you just know to what, Mitch? Us, so. Hold on. I did get this in the mail yesterday. Is uh, Caitlin? Dude, Jenner. you got yours already. There are some uh, things in July that get you excited for. I the still didn't. Season. I still didn't get mine. Although I did buy mine. You bought yours the, the first day you could, right? Yeah, when I had ninety-two thousand people in front of me, and that's not. A yeah, that exaggeration. was Yeah, that was just recorded. You should have just waited. I waited till like Thursday, and I was done in five minutes. It was great. Yeah, it wouldn't. Change. I mean, it's not like a quota, right? There's not. I mean. PA well, guys are just limitless. Well, it, the reason that we had this big push, Paul, was because Pennsylvania just changed the way they do their antlerless license. For years, you had to uh, submit a paper application, send it in this pink envelope to a courthouse, and they would issue you doe licenses because there's certain allocations for every wildlife management unit. And this is the first year that they did it through an online system. Well, the way they did it is whenever you sign in, that is when uh, you basically are pulling a ticket. Well, the system had like 90 some thousand people in it. And there was like a, I mean, I think it was over a 12 hour waiting period at some points to get oh your God. doe license. But the thing is, it's like hardly any sell out first round, at least not that quickly. Like the, the only unit that sold out was one in the Northern tier and it still had them Wednesday. Like it was not <laughs> a problem. Oh man. Well, the voice it should be, the voice ahead, you hear there is is none other than the great Mitchell Shirk from over in Pennsylvania, uh, our Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast Sportsman Empire brethren. Mitchell, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me back, boys. It's always fun chatting with you. Always, always a pleasure, man. Last time we saw each other would have been an ATA back in January. So, yeah, yeah it was it was a little colder than it is now, and I'm not going to lie, I miss that weather over this weather, but that's just me. Nope. Hot, muggy. I'm sitting at my deck. The mosquitoes are feasting on me. I've been yeah, like you're ba- spraying a cocktail of off all over you. Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, see, and I'm sitting in my basement. That, I got so. a sweatshirt on because it's cold down here. So uh, I actually was thinking about doing the same thing. I'm in my basement doing the same thing. It's a little bit nippy yeah, down here, but I'll live. You guys, you guys are a mess. So, Mitch, you were talking about the PGC and the Pennsylvania Game Commission for for you folks who don't know what that stands for, but I'm, I'm working on a mentored hunt. I've been working with the PGC for a, a fall Turkey mentored hunt. Uh, it's going to be it awesome, is. man. We're talking turkeys yep. already. Always. Does that surprise you? You nope. should know this by now. You guys are, you guys are married to this for, you know, a hundred <laughs> episodes or almost a hundred episodes. Almost a hundred episodes. Yeah. So, I mean, you should expect that it's the yep. Turkey talks going to be coming in. And this it's, is my and, Get it out of the way. Tell me about it. I am interested about it. It's November third and fourth, so like right, right during the rut. It's but no it's, problem if I have my buck tags. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. So we're we're going to be on some power company land. They got a few people that the turkey hunt or uh, deer hunt those, but I'm like, man, we're going to be in and out. So yeah, well, is very, this going to be a hunt hit. with dogs or is this going to be? It will. Yeah, be it's going to be a guided mentor hunt. Uh, the PGC is going to run the application process. Joint venture between the PGC and the National Wild Turkey Federation, so it's going to be pretty neat. Five five mentee hunters, well, five mentors, uh, including the uh, the director of the PGC is one of our mentors for this for this hunt, Brian Burham. So be pretty awesome. neat, man. Yeah, it's going to be pretty pretty cool event. So talk about it for for your listeners. Hopefully, uh, you know the parameters for the hunt. 
for the application process will come out soon. I'm I'm actually meeting with uh, the PGC folks tomorrow to to go over that. So it's gonna be pretty neat, man. Look forward to it. Good deal. Cool opportunity. So. Mitch, you had a cool yeah, opportunity is. recently. Uh, I want to cover real quickly the last couple episodes you've put out on your your show. Uh, pretty pretty important person in the world of archery hunting. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, to try to make a long story short, uh, my dad went on a golf trip this spring, and he was telling these group of guys that he was with on this golf trip about my podcast that I've I've had now for you know over two years. And one of the guys said, well, you need to, I need to introduce him to this, this guy I golf with on a, on a, in a weekly league, you know, not far from our area. And starts to tell me about it. And it's none other than Sherwood Shock. And for those of you who don't know that name, Sherwood Shock, uh, 89 years young. And he is, he was at one time uh, state champion archery shooter, uh, national uh, champion shooter. But he uh, he got himself so deep into the industry that he was one of three or four people that was instrumental in producing the first compound bow. He worked side by side with Tom Jennings to produce uh, the first Jennings compound bow, and uh, he was pivotal, you know, pivotal in getting compound bows legalized in hunting. And told us his story from shooting to you know all the you know, the work he had to do. Uh, networking with state agencies and told us about, you know, when it was legalized in Pennsylvania in 1972. And, you know, with that, he had a ton of stories with people in the industry. I mean, he was throwing names out like Ben Pearson and Pete Shepley. And, you know, he, he worked at Grouse Haven Lodge with Fred Bear, was good friends with Fred Bear, Tom Jennings, and Larry Wise, Ted Nugent. Like, he just threw all these crazy names out. And it's like, Oh my gosh, I absolutely have to have this guy on the show. So we did a two part series with him kind of highlighting a lot of his career and stuff. That was a lot of fun to do. It was really cool. It kind of reminded me, Paul, when we got to talk to Dr. Ashby, uh, and some of the yeah. you know, just the the history there, uh, with people who I mean, they've really paved the way for a lot of what we do nowadays, uh, in in our hobbies. But Yeah, because I mean what what has revolutionized uh the world of archery more than the compound bow? crossbow yeah that's the next generation <laughs> i, just, I guess <laughs> i just stoking the fl- stoking the flames there so yeah oh, man it's it, those flames are uh they're intense old nine fingers got into it on on uh stoking the flames of crossbow hunting today on uh, instagram yes. so his his most mm, recent guest nothing about that surprises me <laughs> and it's yeah. that's gonna that's gonna be the, the, the case in point i mean anytime you get something that major it takes a generation to subside before that becomes normal i mean it literally took let's face it 1972 was when compound bow was legalized in pennsylvania and i mean it was generations of that being bad mouth and now we're into the same thing with crossbows and it's going to be the same thing all over yeah yeah i there there's there's a clip that that's made the, the rounds on the internet. We won't, we won't dwell on this topic too much, but we're, you know, the, the guy's like, you know, I, why should, why should a kid get to go out and shoot a, you know, 180 inch deer with, with a crossbow, you know, it was, it was basically advocating for like kids not being able to shoot big deer. Right. And I made the comment. I'm like, I hope a six year old with a crossbow breaks Milo Hansen's record for the all time. 
All time whitetail. That's what I. That's what I want. I want. I want to see a, a like a seven year old girl with the number one whitetail, typical whitetail of all time, with like with like a Barnett crossbow from Walmart from like nineteen ninety eight. That's what. That's what I. That's what I want to see, just to piss all you deer bros off. I'd love it. All right, I'm done. Mitch, what are you doing in the for for deer season, man? Are you get you got any you got any out of state trips planned? Or are you just gonna hunt old old PA and and uh? That's a great question, Paul. Um, I've been back and forth with Andrew a bunch about trying to figure out when I, when I could come over and do some hunting over in Ohio uh, with you guys. And I still have not thrown that out the window. But one thing that has uh, kind of got me a little bit excited, um, I've got wind uh, through the grapevine. This isn't announced to the public yet, but I got wind through the grapevine that somebody told me that New Jersey is going to reopen their bear season again this year. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that that's true. Supposedly, if that is true, it's going to get you know, announced pretty soon. Uh, but if that's the case, I was planning on uh, trying to spend some time over there. Um, I, I got a couple of leads on some places I'd like to scout. And uh, if they do institute the season, they're going to have their, their, their two-part season like they always used to years ago, which is going to be – uh, an archery hunt in October, a muzzleloader hunt in October, and then their uh, their firearm season in December. And I'd really like to uh, take advantage of the October hunt just because it's such a, a good time to try to kill a bear. And I, I'm for whatever reason, you know, I went for a couple of years where you know shooting a bear didn't bother me. I've killed two in Pennsylvania, but for whatever reason, man, I just got bit by the bear bug. So I'm I'm trying to do anything I can to. I really want to shoot one with the bow, but I'm at the point where, you know, gun, bow, uh, stone, and I don't care. I just want to shoot a bear. <laughs> I'll yeah, tell you man. what, Mitch. Hanging out with Lesher last year kind of gave me the bear bug. Like that guy was a bear bear dude he knew all the bear stuff and i was like okay this sounds this sounds pretty cool there's there's very few people that have the interest of bear hunting like him um it was kind of funny when we were hunting deer last year months we would be talking with him he's like, i saw no sign on that drive i'm like what are you talking about it was polluted with sign the first part of that drive he's like i'm not talking about deer i'm talking about bear i'm like oh yeah you would be. but yeah so anyway as far as my plans for hunting um I really, when I think when I think about deer hunting, I don't even know where to begin because this has just been such a crazy year. Um, I, I I'm trying to trying to piece together my my to do list before season comes on a couple of the properties that I hunt. I'm trying to force time into getting things done because I've been busy doing house projects. Um, I, I'll still I'm definitely going to be doing some hunting at camp. Um, I'm going to try to hunt uh, Jersey a little bit. And who knows what happens? I mean, hopefully I can make it over to Ohio. If nothing else, maybe I go over, uh, buy a license and come over in the, the late muzzleloader season because that's a time of year I'd really like to hunt in January, and that'd be an opportunity to scout for next year. So yeah. that's kind of what's on my radar. Well, Mitch, you're always welcome over here. And I tell you what, man, if, if you do that Jersey bear hunt again, I really hope it goes better than last year. And I don't even remember the timeline, but I remember when I met you up at your cabin, which is like it's in its own little time zone warp up there with no cell phone service at all. Thursday, I think you're like, yep, we're going to Jersey on Monday or Tuesday and we're going to do this bear season. They opened it. And then as the weekend went on, there was all this legal litigation stuff going back and forth. And somebody was suing somebody and it had been closed and reopened and closed and back and forth. And then I don't know, they eventually did open it for a couple of days, didn't they? Yeah, they did. It uh 
the Jersey bear hunt last year opened because it was opened by an emergency action and, you know, anti-hunting groups uh, fought it in court, said it was an un, you know, unlawful use of power and they put a moratorium on it right at the opening day. So the first day of their, their gun season was a Monday. So, you know, deer season was open, you know, the, the woods got polluted with hunters, but Monday and Tuesday it was closed. And Tuesday afternoon, I got a text message saying that uh, the court hearing found that it was valid and right then and there it opened. So I basically dropped everything. I went down Wednesday. I hunted, I think I hunted Wednesday and Thursday. And, uh, I think it was like three or four of us that hunted kind of hunted solo, but we all drove down together uh, between the four of us in two days. One of us saw a bear, but what, what we learned is, you know, basically what you'd expect. You got the first two days of gun season pressure, which, you know, people talk about hunting pressure. If you want to see hunting pressure, go to New Jersey on public land the first week of gun season, because that was about as crazy as you can imagine. There was a lot of hunting pressure. And uh, you get people start rooting around the woods, guns start cracking. Even though bear wasn't open, put that pressure in, and where are the bear going to go? They're going to go to the deepest, nastiest, ugliest parts of the swamp you can imagine. And they're hard to find. And, you know, I went in line. I mean, it was a last-minute decision to go do this. I decided I was going to put some boot leather on. Hopefully, I crossed paths with the bear. But I learned some stuff, and it lit the fire for another year. So, yeah, it was a mess last year. Hopefully, better this year. Yeah. So. Well, Mitch, let's talk about what we actually want to talk about uh, in regards to land management. So, oh, I know we're, we're sitting here in the middle of July, but this will probably come out sometime in August. <clears throat> You're the food plot man. You are the food plot expert uh, within our circle. And I want to discuss what hunters should be, land managers should be looking at when it comes to food plots in this late fall period. And I think there's a lot of things that go into play, but man, let's just kind of go from like step-by-step step, picking out the area. Do we need to do soil tests, fertility, what crops we're picking out, you know, designing it, any, anything that you um, think are, you know, would be important for people thinking about if they didn't get their early food plot in and they're gearing up towards this, this late season food plot addition. Yeah, well, good point you brought up there, Andrew. I, I'm I always anytime I do a food plot conversation with anybody or people asking for ice, first thing I always ask is, did you take a soil test? And I think we talked about the last time we spoke. I mean, to me, it's a couple bucks you can you know put a fistful of dirt and send it to a lab. You know, you can go to any of your extension agency officer, you know, county extension agencies, and and get a, a soil sample kit and get it sent off and get your recommendations of what you need for your your. Uh, you know, NPK, micros, your pH, all that good stuff. I mean, that's going to be uh, the best money you spend in trying to to grow a quality food. Plant. And and on that note, because I will, the Buckeye heart, you know, through and through here, Penn State does a really nice job with their soil tests. So, man, how did that taste coming out of your mouth? I, I think I just threw up a little bit. Um, the other one, if you want to support an Ohio-based company, uh, <laughs> you can go to Spectrum Analytics in Washington Courthouse. They do a really nice job. Um, you get on their their website and you can send them in there. So if you're you know doing your soil test, like Mitch said, you can get all all different things across the board. Now, Mitch, when you're looking at a soil test or a food plot, I deal with turf all day long. But is there some things that you'd want to consider, whether it's you know your CEC, organic matter? phosphorus levels stuff that comes into play 
Yeah, I look at a soil test as, uh, you know, five-gallon bucket with holes from the top to the bottom. And, uh, you know, the, the lowest holes in the bucket that I want to fill are going to be your, your phosphorus, your potassium, your pH. And those are what's really important to me. And those, those holes, um, they pro- you know, you plug those holes and you probably plugged up three-quarters of the bucket and you got three-quarters of the bucket filled. When it comes to fine-tuning things and really maximizing it beyond that, um, there, there's a lot of other things to get. But for the, you know, most bow hunters, and not to get into a nerdy food plot soil talk, um, if you guys can manage a pH uh, anywhere between a 6.0 and a 7.0, and you can have, you know, this is basing off of uh, parts per million extraction. We use Spectrum Labs, Andrew, for all the soil samples that we do. And, uh, you know, on that, on that uh, spectrum level, parts per million phosphorus, 50 parts per million and higher, you're going to be able to grow any food plot under the sun with that. And about 150 parts per million in potassium or higher is going to be optimum. You can grow good food plots when they're below that. Those are just the minimum optimum levels that we shoot for and, and going forward. And, you know, with that soil test, you can ask for recommendations. You know, you can ask somebody, you know, like Andrew or a specialist or, or whoever, you know, what should I put on this? Or you could put it right in your, your lab recommendations. What should I put on to address this? And they will give you pounds per acre of fertilizer or lime to put on to address that problem. So it's all done for you. You'll get that information and you can do that right plan all right so i am going to geek out a little bit and i can't remember if we've covered this in the past but if you catch a soil with a you said ph is six to seven we get a lot of them over here that are going to be more in that like 7.5 range is it worth trying yeah, mind-boggling to me is it worth is it worth in your mind trying to put down some sulfur to lower that or is it something you, you can work with in the food plot world in the in the turf world it's not ideal but we can work with it for the most part yeah, I would say the same thing. It's definitely not ideal. Um, you know, we can still grow a food plot, but we're gonna we're gonna have some barriers that we have to overcome through time. I've had very mixed results with using elemental sulfur. I've seen it help, but um, gosh, I mean, I would probably. I don't know, Andrew. I haven't had many experiences where I would was in that position. Um, the, the few that I have, we think it helped, but it had, didn't really move the soil test that much. I think it helped us in the, in the current year situation, but uh, that, that's few and far between. That's a tough one. Yeah, and I, my two cents on that one is that, as I was always taught, we're sitting on a slowly dissolving bed of limestone, which is going to be a higher pH, more alkaline. And uh, when you're starting to put sulfur down on something like that, you're just pissing in the ocean. So it's not yeah. something that unless you're going to be seriously doing, trying to lower your pH long term, it is a very difficult thing to do. Kind of for the backyard hobbyist uh, in this, I'm not talking professional agronomist, but um, so anywho, now that we're off of the nerdy soil pH discussion, Paul, <laughs> nerds, shaking your head at me. Nerds. So I. I Mitch and Andrew, you feel free to feel free to chime in on this. Um, if I if I have a, a a patch of dirt that I've cleaned out in in a forest, if I you know just a small clear cut, I've gone through, I've done, I've gotten the brush out, I've got some sunlight coming down. How how hard is it to to establish a new food plot in August in Ohio? If if this is just 
former forest that I've just kind of stripped out and, and is, is that, is that possible? Absolutely. We do it all the time. I've been, uh, been part of many situations where, uh, those are cleared ground in July and August, the food plot was seeded and it looked great. Um, you know, again, you're going to be dealing and again, in my neck of the woods, I'm typically dealing with uh, heavy deciduous forest with an, acid, an acidic soil. So most of my situations, if you clear a, a wood lot out, I have an acidic soil. and I, I know that I'm probably going to limit my growth potential a little bit just because of that acidity. You know, it might not be the same uh, where, where you guys are at over there, depending on your soil type. But you're still going to be probably dealing with low, maybe moderately low fertility and stuff. But that doesn't mean you can't get started. You hit the nail on the head. It takes sunlight it takes water and it takes sea to soil contact and stuff will grow just no matter how much it's going to grow so um, how, how like with food plots how much how much care does does a does a landowner or land manager have to take for like soil compaction uh food plot has not food plots have not been a major concern for compaction where i see compaction becoming a problem is when you, know, you brought up logging so uh, let, let's take a logging operation. Let's say we do a big logging and, you know, they have a, a centrally located section that uh, they had cleared and landed the logs. And when it's all said and done, maybe they, they scratch the, the dirt up a little bit and throw some grass seed on it for erosion control. But you look at that and go, I could plant a food plot in that. That's a perfect situation where I would say, yeah, you're probably going to have some pretty deep compaction with all that heavy equipment. Same thing with logging roads. Those are all places that are prone to compaction, which is just a physical tightness of the soil. Because, you know, a lot of time you're in and out of there, regardless of how much moisture's in the soil so you know you pack it down you know dry it out and it just gets hard as concrete so yeah that's a that's a pretty pretty tough situation but if you're clearing food plots uh you can manage that a little bit better uh compaction something we deal with a lot in the ag world but i'm not too worried about compaction my my biggest thing is when we're when we're talking about food plots this time of year um, species selection is important to me and trying to maximize food potential. But the biggest thing that I think uh, is, is not talked about enough is, is the food plot you are choosing in the right location? Can you get in, can you get in and hunt it and get out from hunting it and not bump deer? See them, you know, have them see you, hear you or smell you in that food plot because Food plots to me, I, I don't like hunting private ground without food plots because they, that, that's how much power they have to me. But I've also learned the hard way that when you set it up inappropriately, where you attract all these deer to this food source and just, just to bump them off in daylight, that's the way you turn a property nocturnal. So that's the big question and the big thing concern of me is, is this food plot even in, in the right setup in the first place from a hunting perspective? But anyway, so it's a very, very high. Well, let's dive into that. It's very, very high risk, high reward then in your, in your opinion, right? Well, it's, it's very high, high reward. And I think it's low risk if, if you're smart about, it. um, you know, first of all, like, you know, I, I'm just thinking in a couple of situations that I have the, Every food plot that I'm hunting this year or have hunted in the past, I can walk to the tree stand or blind or whatever is there 
And I cannot see into the field until I'm sitting in the stand or sitting in the blind. With that logic, nothing can see me approaching it. And, you know, I'm always going to be hunting it in a situation where my wind is not going to be, uh, you know, blowing anywhere where I'm expecting deer to come from, designated bedding, which no, no big surprise there. But uh, another thing that I really learned, too, is uh, when you, you know, the average average show, right, has probably a, a block of timber property. I mean, maybe not in Ohio because all you guys have is tree lines in certain parts out there. But most of the places I hunt over here, um, it's just hardwood timber that you, that somebody owns a chunk of ground and you can hunt. And you throw a food plot out there. What I've learned is that same age deciduous forest, when you cut an opening into that and you get a predominant west wind and it, gets and it hits that wall of trees and sinks into that uh, food plot that's cleared out. It just swirls in, the, in all those leaves. It just hits that. And it just creates like an eddy, almost like you'd see in a stream when you, when it, when it hits that pool and it kind of gushes back. And uh, I've, I've seen so many cases. It took me a while to learn this um, where you, you'd see good deer coming out in food plots, mature buck. I wanted to harvest coming out in food plots and you'd sit there and you'd, see the first couple doe come out and they'd be there for a minute or two and all of a sudden you whip their head up and boom they're gone so a game changer for me for sitting on food pl plots has actually been permanent box blinds that are enclosed because they encapsulate your scent kind of minimizes that dispersal for if a swirling wind does occur i know that's not for everybody but um i say all that to say if you're sitting on a food plot and you have swirling winds to deal with you're better off not hunting right on the food plot. You're better off trying to find a spot where they're not going to be stopping and running that risk of, of wind swirling. You know that, you know what I mean? Oh, that's great. So in regards, you know, you talk about Ohio having tree lines and all that kind of stuff. You've got your plot there, uh, you know, figure out your access and, and how you're going to hunt it. When choosing the species that you're going to plant, do you ever take into consideration what is on the ag field next door? Um, you know, if they've got corn in there this year, or beans, you know, or vice versa, whatever, uh, or other nearby sources. I mean, it, from a deer's diet perspective, I know they don't just eat corn, even though everybody thinks that. Um, you know, there's there's other things you can plant that might be more appetizing at certain times of the year. How do you go about picking your species? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a, there's I personally think there's not a right or wrong answer in this a lot of the time. There's more than one way to skin a cat. I do like whenever I'm making decisions for any kind of property management standpoint or uh, food plot decisions, I like to zoom out. What is in the surrounding area? Is there a significant percentage of corn? Is there a significant percentage of soybeans? Is that corn going to get chopped in September for dairy silage, or is it going to be standing until November? Um, are the beans, were the, were the beans planted early in the year and they're going to get cut in September, early October? October, or were they planted after wheat and are they going to stay greener longer in the year that's all going to have you know have some impact on what the deer are doing um in their daily lives from a food source standpoint um your property type is important i mean if if you're if you're a 10 acre property and uh you're in a sea of corn surrounding you to me corn is not the answer because if you're a 10 acre property you're gonna have a very small section of corn that depending on your deer density, if you're moderately high, 
they're going to wipe out a small section on your 10 acre property very quickly, you know, versus having, you know, if you, if you're planting oodles and oodles of corn acres, that's one thing, but, you know, catering your, your species to browse tolerance, depending on your deer pressure is pretty important. And that's a, that's a rabbit hole right there. But I like to try to figure out when is the sweet spot of my property's use. And that's, something you might not figure out in season one. Um, there's a couple properties I know that I have a sweet spot between about October 15th uh, up until uh, peak breeding. And I know at that time that if I've got something that has a brassica in it, has a cereal grain in it, and has some clovers in it, uh, those are all really, really palatable things. Um, if I would have planted late beans, peas, and just had solar that, I probably would frost out and wouldn't maximize that time. Um, so I like to maximize the time of the year on small properties where it's going to benefit me the most. Um, and if I've got larger properties and I got enough food plot acres, I want to have enough food from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. Uh, how I've been doing that lately is is multi-species, something that you plant together. It's got a little percentage of a lot of different species, you know, clovers, brassicas, cereals, uh, you know, the whole the whole nine yards. And putting that in one mix and having stuff that kind of piques interest throughout the entire season and having like a smorgasbord type thing. And it, it does last a lot longer in a situation like that. So a lot of ways to skin the cat. I don't know if that answers your question or not. It does. I was just thinking if I was to go to Tractor Supply or Rule King, Walmart, whatever, and I'm walking and looking at whatever potential deer food plots they have, how to pick out which one might be the best. But I think that makes sense as far as, you know, choosing the, the time of the year that's going to be the best for, for your property. Um, and I guess, you know, in your in that world, if you said, I'm very ignorant on this, if I wanted to go buy clover, brassicas, and peas or whatever you know pick three things you would you say cereal grain um can you go to like a co-op or something and request a blend of something like that is that something they sell in individual species or is it basically you have to decide which pre-blended mix on the shelf is best for you i think it's all a matter who you go to there's seed companies out there feed mills and stuff like that if you're looking like hey i want to do some kind of blend um, yeah, they might be able to cook something up for you. You might not. The, the question is, are the people you're talking to, do they have any experience and know how to make that ratio? Uh, there's already some great food plot seed companies out there that already have pre-made bags with the right ratio of each to plant at one time. You know, you don't want to have too many in a mix that has a cereal grain and a brassica. You don't want that cereal grain to have too high of a seeding rate or your brassicas aren't going to really do diddly squat and vice versa with a lot of other species. So if you get, if you go up to a, you know, a farm store and just say, Hey, I, you know, Mitch, Mitchell Shirk on the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast said, I need to put brassicas, peas and cereal grains in the same food plot. Uh, give me a 50 pound bag of each. Well, that's, that's not that's not the way you're going to want to handle that. You're, you're either going to do some research yourself, buy from a reputable seed company, uh, um, or uh, converse with somebody who has experience and can guide you a little bit closer to how you want to fine tune that seeding rate, the species within your, your program. So one of the things I, I would, I've seen in my world, if you go to a box store, 
Um, and I'm not saying I'm not advocating for one or one way or the other, but I would imagine in the food plot world, it's the same thing when you have a seed label on the back, right? And that's going to give you percentages of the different uh, species in there. One of the most important things I've found is the sell by date or the test date in the turf world. You've got about 18 months from that test date before you start losing germination. Do you guys have similar type of thing in the, the forage crops? That is a great thing to bring up. Nobody talks about seed labels and they're so important. Um, yeah, you're going to see, you know, the date it was packaged. You're going to see the percentage of germination, uh, depending on, uh, there may or may not be kind of like, a, an ex- expectation of percentage drop in germination. Uh, one of those things, I think that's always subject depending on how it was stored from year to year too. Um, but yeah, other things to consider on your, your seed tag, uh, throw and grow food plots. That's a real common one. Guys get in a pinch and want to do a throw and grow food plot. And you, you, you look at a, a seed tag or a, a advertisement on a bag. It says, you know, this will grow anywhere. A, a no plow food plot, blah, 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 blah. And what you'll find is a lot of those food plots have annual rye grass in them. And annual rye grass is, not the worst thing in the world, but man, it's really low on my preference. I don't find a lot of value in ryegrass. It's something that gives you instant green because it grows anywhere and uh, makes you feel like you did something good. But as far as uh, the quality of plants, there's a lot better things that we could plant. Um, speaking of uh, seed tags, you know, looking at the percentage of, uh, of germination, like you said, if you find a seed tag that, you know, you're supposed to put 50 pounds breaker on and you've got a, a 60 pound germ, that's a problem. You have to adjust your seeding ring. How much seed you buy? Pure live seed, it's things to consider. And uh, seed coatings, you know, some, some seed labels will have way more seed coatings than necessary. And you just have to ask yourself, is this a seed blend that I want to buy? Yeah, I want to touch on that seed coating real quick. Uh, do you find a lot of seeds coated in the forage world? Yeah, we do. Um, it's more common to see heavy seed coatings in perennials. So your alfalfas, your clovers, your chicory. Sometimes you'll see bags that'll have 18, 20, I've seen as high as 24, 25% inert matter, which is seed coating on those clovers and stuff. And there's a lot of reason for that. And seed coatings are important in a lot of cases because they'll have, uh, have a lot of preventative measure uh, for you know, disease potential on early seedlings, insects, and, uh, you know, really trying to, to maximize the, the life of seed. Because w- one thing I always keep in my mind is in a food plot world, a lot of food plot seed beds aren't prepared to agricultural standards. So you might be putting a seed into a more harsh environment. So I do get that uh, seed company is going to put, you uh, a lot into seed coating to try to maximize the quality of the food plot that that person experiences and make sure that they get to stand established. Because if it doesn't, you know, if a, if a seed doesn't take for some reason in the you know first portion of that planning, you're, you're off to a rough start and you're, you're going to have some unhappy customers. So I get it. But uh, my experience has been in, in fairly moderately well managed food plots. Um, starting perennials. I mean, if you've got six, eight percent is is seed coating, 
that should that should be all you need. I mean, that's normal from the agricultural world standpoint, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, and so when when you're talking about inert matter, okay. So if you see a ten pound bag of seed on on, on the shelf and it says fifty percent inert matter, that means that literally what's inside that bag, fifty percent of it is not grass seed or forage seed, right? And well, I will, I will see that more often in my world, uh, getting up in that fifty percent range. So as Mitch is saying, eight percent, six to eight percent, that's probably normal. You're getting up into twenty four, twenty five, like that's getting a little bit excessive potentially, um, but. Keep that in the back of your mind. If you're picking out your seed, you know, you know that you need ten pounds for, and you, your bag is fifty percent inert. It means you really only have five pounds of actual seed in the bag. If that makes sense. So, little ticky tacky things there, but um, they can make a difference in the long run. So, for sure, for absolutely can. All right, and I think one of the stupidest things that we all over—well, you and I don't overlook. Once you put that seed in the ground. It's going to need a certain chemical from the air or certain uh, molecules from the air called water. Okay, so should we be timing our planting up around, you know, a decent stretch of potential rain or is forage seed tend to just be able to lay there and hang out or how's that working in your guys' world? I try to always plant it as close to rain as possible forecasted, but... Uh, this past year, it seems like it doesn't matter what you do based on the forecast, you're going to be wrong anyway. Um, ideally, if you can get rain immediately after, that's going to be ideal. I had some weird experiences this year in the ag world, man. We had a May that we, some areas did not have a single measurable rain event the entire month of May. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of them would have been most of a quarter of an inch the entire month. And I saw some really, really crazy things just on the end of, it was so dry and we got delayed emergence. Um, it, it did come. It just sat in the ground for a really long time. The ground was dry. The thing you got to watch and what, what kills you is if there's moisture in the ground and you plant and there's enough moisture in the ground that the seed takes moisture and starts that imbibition process to, to germinate. And then you go dry because then the seed will, will not be viable. It's going to die off. But if it's, bone dry the dust is flying and you don't get rain for a while and you're thinking oh my goodness what am i going to do i'm going to replant and then you get a shot of rain three weeks later it's possible it'll come back because the seed just sat there very Mitch, good i've i've got i've got a question about you know it's so back to that like little little patch that i've cleared out in the woods um what what kind of what kind of preventative steps do do people need to take for like weed pressure uh, within, you know, newly established p- plots, you know, mid to late summer. Yeah, um, I'm not anti-chemical. I use chemicals as a tool. I think they're a very important tool for food plots, especially new ones. If they're, you know, cleared out in weedy messes and a hedgerow or even in a woodlot or something like that. So, you know, let's just say it's it's cleared, cleared land like you're talking about, Paul. Um, I, you know, typically I'm expecting bare dirt, right? One one problem I, I typically have in, in wooded lots in my area is we have a lot of Japanese stilt grass. We have uh, knotweed, smart weeds, things like that, that can quickly overtake an area like that. So I might uh, do one roundup application to keep that clean. But uh, 
as long as we have a clean seedbed going into planting or at planting that we have no competition from early seedlings, I'm okay with that. Um, for instance, I, the, the food plots, one food plot in particular that I have this year, I, uh, I planted in spring with uh, just a, a leftover seed from last year. The reason I, I did this, I had this new field. It was uh, a pH was 5.2. Uh, fairly low fertility, and I decided with the, the roughness of this field and everything else, I wanted to take a tillage implement. I, I applied lime at the recommended rate per acre and took a tillage implement to smooth the field out and incorporate the limestone into the soil profile. And then because I exposed soil, I wanted to, to have something green grow quickly for erosion purposes. And also it'll help feed wildlife and stuff like that. So I just had leftover seed from last fall. I had some clover and some rye and some radishes and stuff like that. And I threw that out and the deer are eating it now. But what I'm going to do for my fall plot is, uh, you know, I'll have all that remnants of the stuff I planted. And there's definitely some weeds in there too. I'm going to broadcast my my fall blend in which I'm using this year, I'm using uh, Vitalize's carbon load, which is a 14 way, I think mix of multi-species. I'm going to broadcast right into that. And I'm, I'm going to try to, I'm, I'm trying to make a little drag system. I don't have a cold packer for my four wheeler and this is, you know, kind of a remote section. I can't take equipment with me. So I'm going to take my four wheeler. I'm going to try to make a, a drag with like a baseball chain link fence and some weight and just kind of drag the seeds over the top. And then I'll spray the existing vegetation with Roundup and you know, all that existing vegetation is going to die. It's going to basically be like mulch over top of those seeds, you get some rains and it's going to grow up through it. Uh, just like you're throwing straw on a lawn for grass seed. Yeah, Mitch, I did that last, last year. I don't know if you remember those pictures, but man, that worked great. Um, and just one note there. When you say you're going to spray with Roundup, for anybody who's out there taking notes, picking your Roundup or your glyphosate product, make sure you do not pick something that has any words along the lines of extended control because that means that that product is going to include uh, another active ingredient in there that is designed to keep weeds away for six, eight months, etc. So... Just get straight, your straight glyphosate uh, product. You don't want any type of extended control on that. Yeah, that's a great point. I've uh, fortunately I haven't run into that too much, but I've heard horror stories. Yeah, it happens. So, um, Paul, what else? What else are you thinking? So we've we've gone through the seed selection process. We've gone through soil soil prep, seed bed prep. Um. Is there, you know, fertilizer? I mean, is there, you know, if, if I if I get it in late, can I juice these suckers up just to get some some growth uh, in time for for deer hunting season? Yeah, like I said, when we take that soil sample, um, I'm hoping that at planting we're going to address some of the stuff on the soil sample, the P, the K, and uh, but, but when it comes from a, a nitrogen perspective, you know, the, the basic soil samples we take. You're not going to have nitrogen or sulfur on those samples. That's a very mobile nutrient. Unless you specify that you want to know nitrate levels, uh, you're not going to get that. But we know that uh, certain certain crops, if you're planting a monoculture of brassicas, if you're planting something that's heavily heavily heavy volumes of cereal grains, 
those all need nitrogen. Uh, they're not going to fix their own nitrogen from the atmosphere like a legume. So in a situation like that, after you plant, you want to, you know, as, as Paul uh, described, to juice things up, green things up, give them a little bit of push. Adding a little bit of urea on a food plot uh, with a rain in the forecast it does wonders. You can incorporate, and I say that because nitrogen is mobile. So if you put it out there and it sits there and bakes in the sun three, four, five days, there's a good chance that it's going to break down and it's not going to become plant available. But if you apply it and get a rain within 24 to 48 hours and kind of incorporate that nitrogen into the soil slowly, it'll be plant available and you can take some of that into those plants. A lot of the time for food plots, if guys really want to do something like that, brassicas, cereal grains, uh, I'm looking at just doing something like 75 pounds per acre in, uh, in most cases I have, uh, I've in recent times, I've done way less fertilizer than, uh, than years ago. A couple reasons for that fertilizer is not cheap. Uh, second reason I'd say fertility is moderately better than it once was. So I, I got a little bit lackadaisy, but what I've learned is, the nutrient exchange ability when I plant multi-species is way better than when I plant a single crop. So started doing a little bit of tinkering with uh, different seed mixes. I started doing it myself and in, in my hunting partners, and we would just make mixes on our own with the, with the species and the ratios of stuff we wanted to see and tinkered with that for a while from broadcasting and drilling. And now I'm using this year, I'm using vitalized seed, and Al is a guy who does a great job of tinkering. I call him Mr. Tinker. And uh, he he's really got it pinned down when it comes to these multi-species, what ratios of seed need to be in that mix. And plants do a great job of communicating with each other and exchanging nutrients. And uh, yeah, I'm excited doing that. I'm, uh, I'm seeing biological benefits to it that are reducing my chemical and synthetic use in fields, which... Again, I'm not anti that stuff, but if I don't have to, why would I? Yeah. Just to clarify, Mitch suggested urea, which the chemical analysis on that is going to be 4600 at 75 pounds an acre. And uh, that, Mitch, is not necessarily one of those things where some is good and more is better. Uh, so really try it. 75 pounds, that's a bag and a half of 50-pound bag fertilizer. So you got to get that across the entire acre. Don't just go dumping that stuff. Uh, all you know, I had to think about this the other day, Andrew. I was talking about this with somebody who was non-agriculture, and I said about throwing urea on a lawn. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you can't do that. That's going to burn this and that. And I've come to the conclusion that the reason everybody says that is because nobody knows portion control of any sort, so they over-apply it, and then they burn it. But I, I throw urea on lawns all the time, and, man, that makes the thickest, greenest, nastiest grass ever. <laughs> Might not have any root system, but yes, you're right, Mitch. That's, that's <laughs> there it is. There it is. So, so Mitch, with 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 some of these these late summer, early fall food plots uh, that we're getting in the in, in the ground, how, how long are these food plots going to provide a food source for the critters we're chasing in the fall and, and winter? I think it all is this, depends. Is this season long? Okay. I think it all depends. Again, it goes back to how much are you planning. Are you planting a quarter of an acre on yeah. – yeah, I'll give you an example. One of the properties that I hunt, there is – I think if I add it up, there's almost four acres of food plots 
but it is smack dab in the middle of a giant big woods forest. And I don't care what we plant, it's all eaten before rifle season. I mean, it's lip high. I mean, sometimes I'm wondering what they're even going out there eating. It brings every deer into the neighborhood, and that's four acres of food. Uh, you can have that same kind of situation if you're planting a quarter acre in a high deer density area. They're just going to wipe it out very fast. So deer density is very important in determining this, and that's why I had brought up earlier, look, don't put a, don't try to put a square peg in a round hole. If you've got a high deer density and you've only got a half acre food plot, corn is not the answer because corn's not very browse tolerant. But you know what is browse tolerant? Uh, rye is browse tolerant. Clover's fairly browse tolerant once you get it established. Um, I, I've I've kind of found that you know brassicas aren't really that browse tolerant. They can get eaten pretty quickly, but when you put it in a blend with things and they can kind of pick and choose, you know, they're, they're concentrative selectors They pick and choose what they want to eat lasts a little bit longer than just wiping out something when it's, you know, the cream of the crop. Hey, I don't know if anybody has ever noticed that if you plant a brassica plot, I've, I've seen it where they come up, they're looking beautiful. And then like the snap of a finger in a week or two, they're all gone. I've also seen it where you plant them and they never grow out of the ground because the deer eat them the minute they come out of the ground. Uh, so it's all, it, it like I said, it's such a hard conversation to bring in for new people because there's so many factors that can determine why or how this food plot is going to last throughout the season. And I, I think getting started, the easiest thing to do, if you've got a moderate, moderately well soiled from the from the angle of your soil test. You, you can't go wrong with multi-species for getting started, and you can fine-tune from there. You might find that, hey, this property is going to peak the first week of archery season, and then it's going to suck. Well, I mean, it's kind of hard to beat clover because if you've got soybeans in the neighboring area, what are soybeans doing in September? They're starting to turn brown, and they're not palatable. But what's the, what's the next thing that they're going to transition to? clover and alfalfas and if if your property's capitalizing early in the season then why not put a food source there that's going to capitalize for that point but you know, i do have properties that i get to hunt that we can have season-long control then i'm going to adjust what i plant to maximize throughout the entire season so i know that's kind of vague to what you're asking paul but it's i could probably talk in circles for hours about it <laughs> yeah well, are, are, are there what plant species will provide forage deep into winter that yeah. we can manipulate standing grain. If you can get it there, uh, if you can get corn and beans to, uh, to produce grain and then not be all consumed by that, you know, standing grain is hard to beat in the winter. If you can get it to that point, um, the, the, the best thing in my opinion and I'm talking the Northeast here where I'm at is, is cereal grains, you know, rye grows to like something like 37, 38, 39 degrees Fahrenheit. It's still actively growing. It's still actively translocating, not a lot, but it's still actively translocating nutrients throughout the vegetative portion of that plant. Wheat's a little bit warmer. Um, you know, same thing with triticale. Oats, oats die out in the fall after a frost usually. But uh, those cereal grains, they are not really a glamour crop by any means, but they really hold food late. So when I was, again, going back to me talking about multi-species, you know, this year I have 
with Vitalize, I know we've got some peas in there. There's a couple different types of clovers. Uh, we actually got chick. He actually has chicory in there. Uh, all that stuff's going to be really attractive early, early part of the season. But I know that that's going to kind of diminish at the longer we go on. And I, I think they'll mid October start really hammering the brassica part of it. And uh, then as that starts to diminish, I would imagine that they're going to, they're going to eat the rye. And, and that doesn't even always hold out true guys, because I mean, I've sat in food plots with multi-species in it and never forget this. I watched this doe come out and was watching her in my binoculars. She's 30 yards away and I'm watching her and she is just annihilating every pea that was in this plot. I mean, she just won to the next number. I'm eating all these peas. And 15 minutes later, a nice buck came out. It was not a buck I wanted to shoot. <laughs> and I figured, oh, he's probably going to do the same. That seems like they're really eating peas. He did not touch anything other than a blade of rye. And it was the same time of year. So, you know, when, when, when people talk about, you know, the, you know, like, like I just did trying to match the, the quality or the, not the quality, it's not the right word, trying to match the, uh, the most nutritious, what's the word, most palatable time for a plant, trying to match that to a time of year and stuff. That doesn't always hold true. I think I, I truly believe deer individuals and some of them just have different preferences, but all things considered, the characteristics of these plants, they do themselves kind of peak at different times. So a lot of your legumes are early, you know, brassicas, grains kind of in the mid, cereals late, um, general, very basic rule of thumb, I guess. Mitch, I have to say, you have to be a real agronomy nerd to sit there and decide what uh, each deer is consuming and liking more than I anybody else. So got a kick out of that. It might That's be awesome. Taking yeah. kids to the hey, to the... it's observation. You gotta observe to learn. I mean, I, I love it, Paul. Paul, yeah. how many times have you been sitting in the turkey woods and observed something crazy that this big gobbler did and had this very unique characteristic that you followed him for days on end until you? I've heard all you turkey wackos yeah. talk those stories, so it's the same thing. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what this this turkey season I got to see some of the best hen displaying that I've ever seen and it was I I had I had two hens probably 15 to 20 feet from me and they were they were cleaning or preening themselves it was mm-hmm. fascinating dust baths I mean it was it was great I could have watched that all day and walked out with a smile on my face and I did I mean it was it was so cool I took tons of videos and these hens are just just beautiful oh yeah I, I like it observe to learn man that's how that's how that's how you learn so i gotta Mitch. dig in the archives somewhere i think i have footage the one year i was i was sitting turkey hunting and i had a hen who was strutting and spitting and drumming in front of me that was really cool that's so yeah it's so it's so cool when they do that so mitch i appreciate your time tonight man um where where can our listeners find you on uh social media Hey, you guys can find us anywhere where you find the O2 podcast, I believe. We're on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Sportsman's Empire. Um, you can follow me from the social media standpoint. I'm trying to be better on that whole activity. I, I do okay, but uh, Instagram, at Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. Um, same thing on Facebook, although I, I really don't do anything on Facebook. Whatever I post on Instagram that translate, you know, transfers over there. Uh, goes to that and I always tell people to 
feel free to email me because I get a lot of food plot questions. I get a lot of people that email me their specific questions, and I take the time to talk about it because uh, food plots, scouting, a lot of the stuff you can only highlight so much in a in a conversation on a podcast. So getting specific to your situation support. So my email is pa woodsman podcast at gmail.com so uh it's not pennsylvania it's pa so yeah that's that's how you get a hold of me mitch we appreciate you man as always and we'll be uh talking to you here soon appreciate it guys thanks for having me